And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis. So if you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. One of the ushers would love to bring you a Bible. Genesis chapter 17. Lately, there's been a lot of talk about character and the need for us to live lives filled with integrity and moral character. But I think sometimes we demand from others what we don't exactly demand for ourselves. We, we know that character matters. We know that integrity matters. And if you want to have a, a test for how, how do you know if you're living a life of integrity or character, I think one test is simply what do you do when no one's watching, right? When the teacher leaves the classroom and you have every opportunity to cheat, what do you do in that sort of situation? Or you're hanging out with your family and your kids in your small group. Your kids are driving you nuts, but you're really patient because you've got all these other families here. But what happens when you get in the car? What then? Uh, years ago, I was rowing for my college team, and uh, it was Wednesday. And if I remember correctly, Wednesday was the worst day because Wednesday was conditioning. And so our coach decided it was a great idea to invite the athletic trainer for the Seattle Supersonics to lead the conditioning that day. Now, if you don't know who the Seattle Supersonics, let me just tell you, you might be under the age of 30. So the Seattle Supersonics was the greatest NBA franchise to ever exist, who in the most egregiously evil act, Oklahoma stole them away. Right after we got arguably one of the greatest three guards to ever lace up shoes and play basketball, Kevin Durant. Okay. I don't really know where I was at, but okay. So this, this, this woman comes, she's the, one of the head athletic trainers, and she's going to do this 30-minute core workout, and it was hell. It was horrible. Like no reprieve, constantly going from one thing to the next, planks to bicycle kicks. It was just painful. But about five minutes in, I figured out a cheat code. The woman would sometimes, she'd be walking around, there's like 30 of us, and sometimes she'd turn her back to us. And instantly, all of us dropped to our knees, right? All of us just quit right then and there. When she wasn't looking, our character was tested. And my character was found wanting. Character is tested when we think no one's watching, right? When we're left alone. Well, this morning, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Genesis, we are looking at the life of Abraham. And really, chapter 17 is a monumental moment in the life of Abraham. The text is divided up really clearly It's divided up by God's appearance and then disappearance. So if you look in verse 1, God appears. He like comes down and then speaks to Abram in like three speeches. But then in verse 32, he disappears. He goes back up. So the text is divided up by God's appearing and then God's disappearing. And really, what we want to look at is what happens to Abram when God disappears? God's going to speak to Abram, tell him all these amazing things, all these hard things. 
There's going to be rewards and there's going to be demands. What's Abram going to do once God leaves? And in many ways, I'm less concerned about what Abram does and I'm much more concerned with what we do. The big idea this morning that you're going to see behind and we're going to kind of look at it in kind of two parts is this. Even when it's painful, do you have the moral integrity to follow God's word? That's what we're going to look at today. So let's look at this first chunk, verses 1 to 21. Turn with me there, and we're going to read the first 21 verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offsprings after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall follow twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. We'll stop there. Now, if you remember from last week, chapter 16, Abraham made a mess of everything. He really screwed things up. And his wife, Sarah, well, 
not much better. And now their family looks more like a daytime soap opera than a really kind of normal family, whatever that is. That was chapter 16. And in many ways, Abraham has been stewing in that reality for decades. For 13 years, we have this gap between the events of chapter 16 and the events of chapter 17. 13 years. Ishmael is a teenager now. And Abraham is about to turn 100 years old. Abraham has more life behind him than he has in front of him. But after a long wait, verse 1, God shows up, doesn't he? God shows up and he declares himself as the God Almighty. And then he tells Abram, I'm going to need you to walk before me and live blamelessly. Now, if, I don't know about you, but when I read those, walk before me and live blamelessly, I just interpret it as, oh, God's setting up an impossible standard for Abram to live. Like, he's supposed to live perfectly, sinlessly. That's not exactly what's going on. Really, he's going to explain what walking blamelessly looks like, walking before him and living blamelessly looks like, but, but really, it's not living sinlessly. It really is God saying, I'm going to speak some true things. I'm going to speak multiple messages to you. I'm going to give many promises, and I'm going to make some demands on your life, and if you obey those things, it's as if you're walking before me and living blamelessly. So walking with God is nothing short of taking God's word and applying it it to our lives. It's taking this and saying, I'm going to live under God's word. I'm going to live according to God's word. That's what God is suggesting or telling or demanding that Abram do. Walk blamelessly, take my words, and live according to my words. Well, anytime God shows up on the scene, it's a freaky moment, right? And you see Abram falls on his face. And then the next section, sort of from verses 3 all the way to the end of the point where I read, verse 21, you have all of this language of covenant. Really from verse 2 to 8, and then again from 15 to 21, God is going to explain and tell what this covenant is going to look like. This amazing promise that God is going to give Abram and Sarai, he explains in detail what it is. And really we've seen this before. We saw this in chapter 12. We saw this in chapter 15. But there's some added detail. Same covenant, only God's giving some more details as it relates to how this covenant is going to look. So just as a refresher, remember, a covenant is just a contract. It's a contract between two parties, and God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to enter into a relationship with you. I'm going to enter into a contract with you, and this is what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. And then he's going to say, and this is what you're going to do in response to what I'm going to do. So I just want to point out five aspects of this contract that God enters in with Abram and then all of his family going forward. So I'm just going to point them out really quickly. Some of these are old. Some of these are kind of new. Once more, right, verse 3, we learn that multitudes are going to come from him. God is going to take Abram and Sarai, and they're going to have a really big family. And it's explained later on that Sarah is going to have a son named Isaac. And the language of this, you know, I'm going to bring multitudes out of you, really harkens back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? God tells the first couple, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. 
That's the language we have here. God is bringing forth a new humanity, restarting sort of redemptive history through this new couple. They're sort of the the new it couple. They're the new Adam and Eve. And to make this clear, God then changes Abram's name. Right? Before his name was Abram, which meant exalted father. Now his name literally means father of nations, father of multitude. When we think about like naming a child, we're like, okay, what's a, a cool name that fits with our last name? But back in the ancient Near East, your name had to do with your identity. It like captured who you are, and that's what Abraham's name is. It captures the promise. His name now is connected to the very promise that God is going to bring forth through Abraham. Second, we learn that this blessing is going to eventuate in nations and kings. We see that in verse 6, and then we see it again in verse 16. Which makes sense as to why then God looks at Sarai and says, I'm going to rename you Sarah, princess. After all, she is in the truest sense going to bring a royal line from her. Right? You, You get her son Isaac, and then you get eventually David, and then you eventually get Jesus. Third, we, we also learn this covenant isn't just for them. It's not just like something that Abraham and Sarah get. It actually is going to be passed down from generation to generation to generation. It is an everlasting covenant. The blessings that God is saying, I'm going to shower on Abraham and Sarah, is blessings that will just ripple through all of time. Then fourth, we have this promise of land. We see that in verse 8. And then fifth, we we also learn that this is going to not just be attached to Abraham. It's not going to be just attached to his family. But anyone connected to Abraham, whether you are a servant in the camp, whether you just decide that you want to hang out with Abraham, whether you're a neighbor, if you are attached to Abraham, you are in one sense, attached to this covenant. Even Ishmael is, in some sense, attached to this covenantal blessing. Now, we could spend all year, like, parsing out and doing a biblical theology of all those different aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. We could spend a year doing it. But really, if you just sum up, like, okay, how do we just put all of those different aspects, how do you just sandwich them all together I think God does it to us in verse 7 and 8. Look there. Verse 7 and 8 really summarizes. It's the Cliff Notes version of what this covenant is all about. Starting in verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Do you see that repeated? And I will be their God. Basically, what God is saying is, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is what this covenantal blessing and promise is all about. It is nothing short of saying, God, God is saying, I'm going to give myself to you. And in return, I want you to give yourself to me. And I think in one sense we have to step back and say, I mean, that's amazing. It's great. But this is Abraham. 
that we're talking about. And do you remember last chapter 16, Abraham really screwed up. And yet, this promise still comes to him. Which I think makes perfect sense how Abraham responds initially, right? Look at verse 17. He falls down on his face once more, and then he laughs to himself. Right? Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, and Sarah's really old too? He, he, he laughs. And I don't think this is a scoffer's laugh. There's, there's no hint that God rebukes him. Later on, there's going to be a laugh that seems to be a scoffer's laugh. Here, it just seems to be like the ridiculousness of this promise cannot be believed, and so he just laughs. It reminded me of uh, a few years ago, myself and one of the elders of this church were visiting some missionaries overseas. And we were flying back, and we were sitting in the back of the plane with all the peasants. And all of a sudden, through some strange fortune, and I don't really remember how it all happened, but this stewardess said, why don't you guys sit in first class? And we sat there. And, you know, you, if you've ever sat in first class, in an eight-hour plane uh, flight from Paris to New York, you, you, like have, you, like, have, like, an entire apartment, basically. You've got, like, a waiter. It's, like, amazing. And I remember about an hour in, turning around, looking at this elder, and he was laughing. Now, was he scoffing? No, he was just laughing at the ridiculousness of our good fortune. This is amazing. And the most appropriate response to, you know, experiencing life as the rich and famous in first class is to laugh at it. I think that's what's going on here. Abram, Abraham, can't believe himself. And so he laughs. He just thinks about all of the different aspects of the, the glorious promise, including the, the greatest of it, which is God saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. He just is like, that's amazing. These same promises, you will be my people and I will be your God, are carried across to the New Testament. We can claim that as well. God is our God. We are his people. Do you get bored with that? Do you still laugh at the reality of that? Abraham did. I think in some ways we should respond in similar fashion. Just astonished that God, in the midst of all of our brokenness and of all of our weakness, God would say to us, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, maybe you're like, ah, that reality doesn't, I know it should, you know, inspire me to laugh at the ridiculousness of the good fortune of having God as my God. But, but if that isn't you, or if you're like, ah, my, my heart has grown cold or stale in light of that reality, here's my one encouragement to you. Find someone in this congregation whose faith you admire and hang out with them. So often this is caught more than it's taught. Find a man or a woman, and there are dozens upon dozens of men and women who all of us should seek to emulate and spend time with them. Go out to coffee with them. Just text them and say, can I just spend some time with you and read the Bible with them and pray with them? And I really do believe that as you do that, you will begin to cultivate that joy and laughter at our good fortune that God has lavished on us through grace in Jesus Christ. God's blessing really is amazing. But as amazing as these promises are, I want to look for a longer time at the demand that God makes because it really is quite 
the demand. And we see that demand in verses 9 through 15. So, so 2 to 8, God speaks about this covenantal promise. And then again, we, we see God speaking to Abram and about Sarah about this covenantal promise. But then right in the middle, sandwiched in between the blessings of the covenant, we have the demands of the covenant, verses 9 to 15. So as a sign that Abraham and Sarah and the whole family are walking with God, they're to do something. There's going to be a sign that signals that they're with God. They're to be circumcised. I'm not going to get into the details about it. If you don't know what that is, go talk to your parents, go talk to someone later. That's not my job. But this is the sign, and it's detailed. They're to do it on the eighth day. This is how it's going to work itself out. Now, what you should be asking is, this is weird. This is like, like why that? Like, like, oh, this is great. Like, there's the sign that God's never going to flood the earth is a rainbow. Cool, great. I love rainbows. Get me more of that. Circumcision? Why this? Well, uh, there's lots of cultures that actually practice circumcision in Abraham's day. So, so for instance, in Egypt, priests were circumcised to set them apart. So, so in their culture, this was common practice to set aside a people or, or a priesthood or a person or a family for holiness, and they would circumcise. So it wasn't new. But I think even more than that, it's not just God's using it because it was culturally appropriate, but also if you just think about it, if you just think about it, this act was perfectly aligned with the promise that God was going to give. I mean, just think about it. The, the promise is by way of a seed that that. Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son. And so the sign that they're believing in the promise perfectly aligns with this whole idea of circumcision. This covenantal family is going to come by way of the promise of God and to manifest that they're really believing in the promise, they are to follow in this act. And so circumcision really isn't just outward necessarily. It really is connected to this promise. But, but I just want to make clear, order is really important in the Bible. And so it's not as if God is saying, I want you to be circumcised and then I'll be your God. You got to get the order right. If you miss up the order, you, you, you fail to, to understand what the gospel is. Like Christianity breaks apart. In chapter 15, Abram believed God and he was made righteous. He was credited as righteous. And now in chapter 17, he's called to circumcise himself and everyone else. So it's faith and then it's this work. You got to get the order right. And that is the order that we see here. Now, n- notice also, I want to point out, this is n- not just... Uh, a sort of outward manifestation that's connected kind of literally to the promise. It's not just a cultural thing, but it's pretty serious. It touches, you know, the most private parts of our life, literally. And in many ways, I think it's supposed to remind us of that reality, that God touches, that's not the right word, God, God, a relationship with God, entering in a relationship with God means all of us. Not just those parts that we're like, no, that's too personal. I'm going to keep that for myself. God says, there's nothing personal in this relationship, in this covenant. When we are going to enter into a relationship, it's going to touch all of my life. 
And there's also no negotiating with God. I mean, just imagine Abram, he doesn't respond to this. Abraham's like, um, great, I'll do it, but uh, can, can we, uh, like, or well, what about the women? Or, uh, like, he, there was no negotiating with God, was there? God says, here's the blessing, here's the covenant, and here's the covenantal demands. It's my way. You, you even see that, to say that if you don't, you know, cut the foreskin, you are cut off from the family, right? It was God's way or no way. It was going to be costly. You see, I think circumcision is meant to be a reminder that faith is meant to encompass all of our lives. We can't just like keep some aspect of ourselves and say, well, that's personal. God can't touch that. No, our entire lives are meant to be under God's authority. And this demand was placed on Abraham as a result of this covenant. So, so you get this amazing reward, this glorious reward, but then you also get this costly demand that basically is saying, Abraham, I want you to give up your rights. I want you to give up the authority over your life, and I want you to submit your authority to the authority of God himself. That's what God says. It's quite the bombshell, isn't it? And then God says, all this amazing goodness, all this amazing blessing, all these rewards, here's the demand, and then God says, I'm out. Starting in verse 22, God ascends, as it were. God leaves Abraham. He leaves him alone. And you have to be wondering, this is how the text is functioning. You're wondering, what's Abraham going to do now that God's gone? Because remember, character is forged or tested when you think no one is watching, when you're all alone. What's Abraham going to do with God's word that comes with blessing, but also comes with the demand of discipleship, the demand of obedience? Verse 22, look at it with me. Verse 22, when he had finished talking, this is God, with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or brought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house, those born in his house and those brought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Amazing. Abraham did it. Abraham followed God. And he did it decisively and exhaustively and immediately. So often we don't get that as parents with our kids. But Abraham did this to God. He circumcised himself and everyone else. And I just want you to set the scene, because this is the thing that was making, I mean, just imagine. So Abraham has this amazing encounter with God. And can you imagine him just going to, gathering all the men together and goes, okay, so I was just with God. And God gave me some amazing promises. You guys, there's going to be nations that are going to come from us. We're going to get a land. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. And they're all like, let's go. This is great. And then they're like, okay, and kings are going to come. And I'm going to have a son. Like, Sarah's real, real old, and I'm getting a son. 
isn't this great? And there's going to be riches. And they're all like, this is fantastic. And he goes, okay, well, I haven't gotten to one other thing. So here's the thing. So I'm going to need uh, all of us to get circumcised. And they're like, what? And they're like, you sure you heard God right? And they're like, yeah, I heard God right. Okay, so we're going to need to do it. And they're like, okay, how? And he's like, well, you guys see Zedekiah back there. He's got a, a tent. So he, he, you're going to go see. Go stand in line. And you're going to need to go see him. He's like, sorry, numbing cream hasn't been invented. Uh, sorry, scissors won't be invented for another couple hundred years. So uh, it's going to be real painful. And some of you are like 150 years old, and your body doesn't heal as fast as others. So it's, it's going to be real traumatic, and uh, we don't have a counseling service to get you through the psychological devastation that this is going to be. Well, you're going to need to do it. I mean, Zedekiah has been practicing for a while, and, you know, he, he's going to mess up a few of you. But guess what? This is great because... It's not me. Like, the seed's coming for me. Uh, you got no promise. And then can you imagine him saying, hey, Ishmael, I know you're a donkey of a man. That's what the prophecy was. Meaning he's wild. Can you imagine holding him down, being like, hey, you're just going to have to do it too. I mean, we could just, like, play with that. Like, this is ridiculous. They're like, how could we trust you? This is crazy. And yet, what happens? They all do it. That's what the text says. They all do it. Abraham, you see, was a man just like us. He was a human just like us. He wasn't distinct. I mean, yes, he's distinct in redemptive history. There's a, a role he plays that none of us will ever play. And yet, at the same time, he still feared man. He's still worried, are they going to obey? Are they going to follow me? He must have had those fear. It's common to us all. And yet, he still obeyed. I, I think this, this is such a, a description of radical faith. And don't get me wrong, Abraham is distinct, but I think the calling for radical faith has not changed at all. It's not just that Abraham was meant to radically follow God in faith, or Abraham's people were not meant merely to follow God in radical faith. We too still are called by God to live out radical faith in our life. Genesis 17, God comes down. But centuries later, the true heir of Abraham came down in the person of Jesus Christ. And he called humanity to radical faith. Do you remember one of his first things? That Jesus says, Jesus comes on the scene and he announces that he is the king. He has all authority. He is the king and his kingdom has arrived. And he said, if you want to enter this kingdom, if you want to enter this relationship with me as king, you need to, he doesn't say circumcise, he says, I need you to repent and be baptized. Meaning, repentance meaning, I'm no longer going to rule my life, but I'm going to let God rule my life. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to say, yes, I'm a, I'm a sinner, but I want to align myself with Jesus, which seems most right to be manifested in the act of baptism. That's a radical faith. Even today, the act of baptism is scary. It's, in one sense, embarrassing, but it's like putting on the team jersey saying, I'm with Jesus, and I want everyone to know it. That's terrifying, and yet that is the demand that comes to us by way of the new covenant, that's its manifestation. 
It's radical faith. It's hard. But I just want to encourage you, if you haven't displayed your faith in Jesus Christ through baptism, that is the command, that is the demand for partnership in God's family. And hear me, baptism does not save you. Baptism is putting on the team jersey. It's saying, God has already saved me. I want to tell everyone about it. Oh, but there's so much more. Maybe you're like, I've done that. But do you remember Luke 9? Jesus comes and he says, if anyone comes after me, same sort of language that we hear in Genesis 17 about walking before God. So if anyone wants to come after me, walk before me, follow me, Jesus says this, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you want to save your life, you must lose it, Jesus says. I mean, is there a message that goes against our culture more than that? Be your true self. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do anything. Be the authentic you. And Jesus comes to us and says, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Be more interested in what God would want and his approval than what the world approves of you. And he says you're going to need to do that not every decade, not once in a while, not yearly, daily. Daily die to yourself. Do the hard thing. Meaning don't wallow in your sin. We all make mistakes. Even even claim the promise that you are forgiven in Christ and live according to that. That sometimes can be what walking according to taking up your cross can be. Sometimes it's just as simple as saying, oh, I'm a blood-bought Christian, and I need to remind myself of that. I think Genesis 17 should be the most encouraging thing for us because Abraham knew less, and yet he followed God in some really hard ways. He had great promises, did he not? We have better promises. His faith was attached to future promises. Our faith is also attached to some future promises, but our faith is also attached to a past accomplishing of those promises. Abraham was waiting for Jesus. We've seen what Jesus has done. He was wondering what this seed would do. We know that that seed would become a king by wearing a crown and die for the sins of the world. Abraham knew in part and still believed. We know so much more fully, and yet God still calls us to obey. God looks at Abraham and says, you're going to have a big family. We know that family is going to not just be in Israel. It's not just going to be ethnic. It's going to be from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Abraham had some guarantees. We have guaranteed of all of God's promises being yes in Jesus because Jesus rose from the grave. Abraham didn't have that. Abraham knew in part, we know much, much more. See, Abraham experienced God. God appeared to him, but for us, we don't just get to experience God. You see, Jesus ascended 2,000 years ago. But now, we don't just have more incentives to obey because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus God says, because of that, I'm not just going to incentivize you to obey. I'm going to empower you to obey, and the Spirit is going to live in you. 
Abraham had a memory of God's Word. We have God's Word exhaustively in this book. I mean, Abraham had a lot of things, but us being on this side of the cross, living under the new covenant, have much more promises. And that's why I think this should be so encouraging that Abraham obeyed God, and I think, I know, I believe that we too can obey God in radical faith just like Abraham. Our faith doesn't save us any more than circumcision saved Abraham. I think there's a surprise in this for all of us, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we forget that people are watching. Sometimes we forget that God's watching. He is omnipresent. But that theological truth doesn't always make us act in light of that truth. But you see, over and over and over again, in the New Testament and actually in the Old Testament, there's a truth, and God keeps telling his people and his church that the world is watching us. And how you respond is important because they're watching. God sees all, yes, but there are points where we forget that. And the question for us, the question of Genesis 17, the question of Abraham is, when God is out of your mind, are you still going to obey? Or when God calls you to radical faith, when God puts his demand on you to be a disciple of him, to take your feelings and to put those under objective truth in God's word. Are you going to follow God's word? In this story, Abraham did. The question for us is, will we? Let's pray. God, we, uh, we come before you as sinners in need of your grace. Lord, we come before you desperate, for you to speak to us. We come before you knowing that so often we want to wiggle out of of your demands on our lives. And yet, because you have circumcised our hearts, you have empowered us to live as new creation. And so we pray that you would help us right now in this season to live under the authority of your word, empowered by your spirit, transformed to look and to act more like Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.